Welcome to this very special edition of A Shot in the Arm podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Now, this is an episode you can enjoy, listen and watch along as always, but we have also produced it to be an introductory discussion for a webinar for the students of the Bay Area Global Health Innovation Challenge collaboration between UC Berkeley and Stanford, UC San Francisco, UC Davis, Health Roots Foundation, and our very own Bay Area Global Health Alliance. It's a chance to learn more about the state of global health investments and what makes the opportunities that exist for funding for fine young social entrepreneurs as they take their innovations to scale across, you might say, between Shark Tank and the Great British Bake Off. Well, we're going to be joined by Krista Donaldson, the CEO of Equalize Health, which promotes and designs world-class products for everyone. Krista, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Thank you, Ben. I'm really happy to be here. Likewise. Um, could you describe a little bit about Equalize Health? Sure. Um, Equalize Health, we started about 10 years ago. We started originally as DREV, which is short for Design Revolution, and we found ourselves well, we started originally as a, as a product development for good company, but we found ourselves quite quickly moving into health. And so after spending many years in health and realizing the name DREV doesn't work, we um, formally renamed ourselves Equalize Health last year. We are fundamentally a medical technology company, but we think of ourselves as problem solvers. So we address gaps all the way along the, the continuum of getting great patient care, no matter where you live. And I've got to say, Equalize Health has one of the very best websites I've seen. So for uh, our listeners and viewers and for the students participating in the, in the Innovation Challenge, it's a place I'd certainly recommend looking at as, a, as an inspiration on how to communicate. Can I touch a bit on your background? How did you come to be interested in health? You've had a career pursuing technology design and social entrepreneurship. What brought you into health as opposed to, say, some other social need? Yeah, you know, I sometimes wonder that myself because I, I actually grew up in a medical family. I have a father who's a doctor and spent a lot of time around medicine. I think like many children of medicine, <laughs> we actually avoided for a while. Um, but I got very interested in medicine, you, as, you're, as you pointed out, through the technology route. And I became really interested in how, you know, whether you're in a hospital in rural Kenya or rural India, you know, the, the conditions, while different, are not radically different. And I compare that to having worked in agriculture where, you know, you can move 50 kilometers and the salinity is different, the crops are different, the behavior is different, everything's different. But hospitals, they do have more of a, especially referral facilities where we tend to focus for equalized health, there tends to be more of a common baseline of teaching and knowledge and protocols. And so that got me really interested because from a design standpoint or from a problem solving standpoint, this is really powerful in terms of solving problems at global scale. When I worked in agriculture, you know, as I mentioned, things vary, you know, from region to region and preference to preference. And I've worked in electricity reconstruction too, which again, can be very different based on where you're working in the economy and, and, and how everything, the geopolitics come together. But healthcare, um, you know, and it's it's saving people's lives. It's a, it's a very different area. And for me, it's, it's also quite personal too, because for those living in poverty, you need your health. Like you need your health to be able to go to school, 
to be able to have a job, to function in society. And, you know, even your health is a sign of like whether you can get married or not. So um, that's how I ended up in health. <laughs> They're a little bit of a roundabout way. No, that's very helpful. I mean, you know, the, the mantra is that your health, no matter where you live, is your number one asset. And the linkages between, say, agriculture and health and health and education are are incredible. Um, and these are the kinds of linkages and creativities that we're hoping that uh, students and applicants as part of the Bay Area Global Health Innovation Challenge are going to be looking at. Um, as we look at the exciting uh, innovations that are being produced by these young entrepreneurs, um, could I get your thoughts a little bit about how to go out and identify and secure funding? What advice would you give them, particularly now in 2021, as we enter the age of pandemics? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And I think that the question of like, where do you find your first bit of money is always really important to any entrepreneur in global health. I would say the first thing is you're a student. So that's fantastic. Look and see through your school what possibilities exist. And also while you're at your school, you also have access to resources that once you're on the outside, you're going to have to pay for. And so this might be testing or some kind of clinical feedback or anything like that. So Look within your school, A, what resources are available that otherwise would cost you, what funding is available. So I would start there. And then I would start to look at, um, there's multiple foundations that focus on early stage entrepreneurs. And so this is the Draper Richards Kaplan um, Foundation. Malago has a Rainer Arnold's fellowship, but there's multiple ones. I think Y Combinator also looks at fairly early stage whether you're for-profit or non-profit. So there's lots of groups that really focus on these early stage. So take advantage of while you're in school, what you can, and then once you're out, look for these early stage funding opportunities. Now, you've worked in both the private, well, the private, public, <laughs> and non-for-profit sectors. Um, and, and it's something, actually, that I have in common with you. But what do you think are the opportunities and challenges for young entrepreneurs who are considering where best to house the innovation they are developing. Um, government, private sector, not-for-profit. What makes greatest sense these days? And, and are these definitions actually becoming out of date? You know, that's a good question. I hadn't thought, are they becoming out of date? I certainly think thinking of them as pure verticals is going to be something of the past soon. So you're certainly onto something there. There's, we're seeing so many more consortiums and, and partnerships, which we should be. Um, so yes, I think looking for where there's powerful partnerships is a good place for thinking, you know, I, where your innovation depends, I think is part of any due diligence. You do need finding around users to best understand you know, does this concept or idea work in this scenario? What's the feedback from users? Well, you want to do, you know, due diligence around the business model and the pathway to scale too. And part of that is who do you work through? You know, who, where is there already some, you know, energy and inertia? And for example, in maternal health, we saw that Merck just uh, launched Oregonon, which is going to tackle maternal health issues, you know, everywhere in the world. And that's really exciting. So if you're working on maternal health, like you should really have your antenna perked up there. And I'm hoping this is the first of many of big for-profit companies we see moving in. So it's not just the nonprofits, it's not just government programs, but we're seeing a broader swath of organizations. 
At the end of 2020, Equalize Health produced a report on funding for innovations in maternal and neonatal health. And I, I wondered, Krista, if we could spend a couple of minutes talking about that. Um, you were looking at trends for innovations in, I guess, a whole range of, of areas uh, for maternal and neonatal health. And what were your key findings? Yeah, it was really interesting. We were seeing, um, and we started this research because anecdotally, we were seeing a few things that did not necessarily support what we would call best practice in innovation development. And an example of that is um, in the kind of typical global health funding environment, we were seeing the sweet spot to raise that first seed amount of money was once you had a concept that you were pretty much like decided on and you had some data associated with it. And that's one of the reasons why as a student, like if you can get to that stage, like that's going to put you in better stead with your project. The challenge is, is that as you know, if you're doing really good user research and market research, there's a lot of iteration and there's a lot of work that happens up till that point. And so we wanted to better understand, like we're seeing this, it's not really incentivizing necessarily best practice because people are racing too quickly to a concept and then glomming onto it as compared to this ongoing testing. Um, so the major findings, so we did this research, we did it in a partnership with the Global Innovation Exchange out of Washington, DC, and they have this great database for those of you who don't know, um, but it tracks all of the innovations across the development sector. And we honed in, as you said, on maternal and newborn health. And we looked at all of the projects and the projects date back, it's not perfect, like 10 to 15 years. And it's all the major institutional donors. So Gates Foundation, Grand Challenges Canada, a lot of, you know, the players we, we know. Um, and then we looked at the stage of, um, of where these projects, who the money went to and the stage these projects achieved. And so in terms of where the money went to, um, most of it went to universities. So again, like if you're a student, take advantage of that. I think um, 40, over 40% 40 of the money went there. And in maternal and newborn health, it was about 220 million total. Um, and then if you look at what these projects achieved, so what's the last stage of development these projects were at, um, at the time of measurement, um, and you really saw this like inverse hockey stick. So tons of projects in the early stage, what we called piloting and then scaling down. We, we had a five point scaling stage that's from piloting to global change. And that's a little bit different than most scaling um, metrics, but I feel really strongly about it because if we're not in the business of global change, why are we <laughs> doing innovation, right? <laughs> anyway, right. but you see this big drop off and the drop off really happens after testing. And so I, we looked at that data and we said, there's a scaling problem. And we think that there's multiple things related to this. One is that if universities are really funded, universities are so fantastic. They've got all of the students who come up with great ideas, um, there's lots of testing, you know, there's a lot of great things, but universities are not built to develop products for market and products for scale. And so the, the projects that did reach global scale and did have what we call mature scaling. So if they were a for-profit, they're out there, they're making money, they're scaling as a nonprofit, they're just scaling without ongoing donor support. That's what we're calling mature scaling. Those guys were all, um, organizations like us or for-profit companies. And so we came out of this thinking there has to be a better model for global health can we partner, we Equalize Health, can we partner with universities, with students who have great ideas, but maybe don't understand the business model or don't have the capacity to do the business market, you know, impact research that's needed, you know, to get these projects over the finish line and have the commercial relationships to scale. 
So to us, it was uh, it was really informative. And I'll stop there because you probably have other no, questions. No, that's fine. I, see, that's part of the report I found really fascinating. Yeah. The the sort of the, the drying up of investment to scale up. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and I completely take that, you know, universities... That that's not their expertise. Whether it's uh, whether it's COVID nineteen vaccines or whether it's um, uh, a hip replacement advance, and and I just wondered that, that as well as perhaps as you know that they're not cut out to do that. Um, is there an element of funders just wanting to be associated with the next big idea? Rather than having to, uh, you know, do the long, dirty rolling out work, we know has to happen to get these things to market. I, I think that's right. I think there's always an attachment to the the new, next, exciting thing. And you know, one b- little bit of data maybe to think about too is CPAP. So neonatal CPAP, um, continuous positive air pressure for premature babies. Most of us are very familiar with this, but respiratory distress, which it treats, is still one of the leading causes of newborns globally. Interesting fact, CPAP as a treatment for newborns has been around for over 50 years. So to me, like this is a really interesting example of like the technology exists, but for some reason we cannot design it. Sorry, my cat wants to join the podcast. No, he, uh, he she is most welcome. My <laughs> dog is sleeping again. very quietly at the, the, <laughs> the base of the table, and I just hope if we hear some snoring, our listeners and viewers will think that it is neither one of us. <laughs> It'll be one of our pets. Anyway, I was going to say with CPAP, I mean, it, it's it's been around for 50 years and still like it is not reaching most hospitals in the global south in a meaningful way. And it's not for lack of research. Um, and, you know, and we're on to funding the next thing. But I do feel there is real fundamental things that we as a global society must solve in a way that recognizes the needs and constraints of the markets and the facilities we're serving. And that should be our number one priority. Not not the next thing and not necessarily leading with technology, but leading with the needs and the means to solve those problems. Has COVID impacted the way uh, you are seeing innovations for maternal and newborn health being invested in and indeed uh, the products that you invest in? Yeah, so I think, you know, we're going to be seeing this for a while. And all of us who work in in health are seeing a real doubling down on everything related to COVID. And I think that absolutely makes sense. Um, But at the same time, we cannot forget about the urgent needs that, you know, we were driving towards with the sustainable development goals. You know, where we're seeing big changes in our work um, isn't so much the investing. I would say there's less investing in, you know, standard newborn health issues because of the shift to funding with COVID. But where we're seeing the biggest needs popping up besides, you know, the existing needs for us has been around education. And we um, we have a telementoring program. I mentioned that we tend to do technology, but one of the gaps that we also address downstream, because technology doesn't just scale on its own. And we have to be able to address some of these ecosystem challenges to support the adoption and the scaling. And one of them is telementoring. And we saw our telementary program just explode. And the reason for that was because we have this great network of doctors in many of the places we work. And they came to us and said, we are now getting pulled into adult ICU service. And we, you know, we know how to run it in a kid's ICU. We can do PICUs and we can do NICUs. But if you ask me to run a ventilator in an adult ICU, I'm not sure I know how to do that. So our work, interestingly, really scaled up there. And with the telementary, we went, I think, pre-COVID, we had trained, you know, on the order of 40 to 50 
clinicians and now um, we've trained over 1200. And this was purely driven by the clinicians themselves and the local medical associations and all led by local experts. And so I think for us, a lesson coming out of the pandemic really has been being responsive to what the clinicians have identified as their highest priority and then leveraging up, you know, what we can, you know, scaling up what we can are finding the right partners to support their needs. If we could broaden the conversation a little bit, Krista, I mean, it seems to me that that you and your colleagues at Equalize Health are uh, in some way futurists. You're looking at ways of generating and finding innovation that's available to all, and that's a, a huge challenge. Do you think uh, that post-COVID-19, the age of pandemics preparation, that the new normal is going to look significantly different? And in particular, do you think that smart design is going to help us improve the way we design accessible and affordable health innovations? I really hope so. And I think, you know, to your question, I think what's going to change is I think, you know, so many of us have been talking, and I know you too, Ben, talking about like the to to really innovate in our field. It's not just about the technology and it's not just about the discoveries. It's about the supply chains and it's the logistics and it's all of in procurement. It's all of these things that are causing friction. And I really hope <laughs> coming out of COVID that we have seen this. We've seen this as a sector and it's not just the testing and everything that goes around it and the the scaling up of the vaccines and the non-scale up of the vaccines that we would really like to see. And this is something, you know, many of us have been talking about in the sector for a while. So, you know, thinking about the future, I really think, I hope those of us who are talking about the, the, the non-sexy aspects of global health solution solving, it becomes more interesting and it becomes something that people see as a real way to multiply scale and drive efficiencies for a global society, which is how we should be thinking about these things. And 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 I'll just put a, a pitch out for <laughs> multiplying scale because I I do find it sexy. <laughs> <It's> the, <laughs> you too. You know. You might be the only one, so. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but just the way of seeing how different communities adapt technologies and innovations in ways that suit them, I think is just the most fascinating thing. I totally agree with you. And I think it's something that we all need to learn from. And, I, yeah. you know, there is still this tendency of, you know, things innovated in the West and like scaling and behavior change and all these things. And we need to be learning from every instance of modification as a global society. And we need to triangulate that information so that we can provide future solutions predicting what's needed in different geographies and different locations and different cultural preferences. It's going to make us so yeah. much smarter as, you know, as a field. Yeah, absolutely. So Equalize Health, you're a member of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Um, why did you join? What, what, why are partnerships between the academics, private and nonprofit sectors so important to you? Well, we joined because, I mean, as you know, we, I, the Bay Area and Washington, we just have such a fantastic energy of people working on these types of problems. And I think there's so much to learn from each other. But fundamentally, you know, at Equalize Health, we're proposing a new model of working together. I mean, we've all we've known as a sector we need to work together, and, and many of us already do. But I think to truly solve some of these problems faster and better, um, we need to be like structuring these partnerships from the very beginning, like learning from in-market teams who understand the needs, understand the markets, 
you know, going to universities and being like, this is what we're seeing. Like, what kind of innovation are you doing? Here's the constraints. Like, hopefully we can help you develop concepts and seed with students. Like, how wonderful it'd be to be like, hey, you know, here's like what we're seeing and the students, you know, come up with some ideas and get feedback right away. If we can, you know, really build that network. And so I see being part of this community as, you know, really starting to push for a more efficient model where, you know, we are bringing the world together. It's not just the Bay Area, but it's bringing all of our connections and all of our partners together into, you know, again, more of a global network. I, I see that my final paragraph here is called Sanity During Shutdown. Which, <laughs> uh, um, how, you sure said insanity during shutdown? <laughs> well, right, hey. Um, how have you got through the last year? I mean, you've done a rebranding. Um, uh, what was that like? I mean, and, and just to let you know, I've finished a, a three-year strategic plan for a local nonprofit, and all of us are sort of scratching our heads. And and considering that the process actually was more enhanced to a very large degree because we had to do it virtual. We all knew mm -hmm. each other, but we had to be so focused in our conversation. And I I wonder if there are things about shutdown that have actually made us do things better? And are there examples that our young entrepreneurs can can take from this moment? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has certainly heightened our sensitivity to our global partners. Um, you know, if you're not commuting, you're available for times, you know, first thing in the morning, late at night. And, you know, we were before, but I just think as part of the shutdown, it has become more part of our beings in some ways. And I can't ever imagine going back to where our days were structured around us and not structured around our global partners. And I hope that I hope that never changes. And I'm so excited for being able to travel again. So so many of the colleagues that I have not been able to meet in person, I will be able to because I still think that's important as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the personal level, whether it's family, detective novels, or binge-watching documentaries, what's been keeping you interested this last year? I love to learn new things. So I've been going from um, art history classes on Khan Academy, smart art, to, um, yeah, to learning about writing children's books, to learning better 401k <laughs> retirement I just, I have to say, like, I think it's incredible what's online and what you can learn. And, you know, maybe I sound like an old timer, but it certainly wasn't like that 10 years ago. So I'm just, yeah, yeah I love learning new things and love having been able to do that in with today's online materials. Well, Krista, you're making me feel really silly. We've just finished binge watching a Korean medieval zombie uh, <laughs> TV series. Um, and what is the funniest thing about it is that the zombies sound exactly like our Korean pug. So uh, that's been a that's been a lesson. For I like us. yours. I'm watching the Medici's right now. I'm behind. Oh, okay. Or the Medici's yeah. to pronounce yeah. properly. Yes. Well, Krista, I know we're for those of us who are going to go on into the mentoring session with the Bay Area Global Health Innovation Challenge. You and I will be open to the students' questions. Thank you so much for coming on to A Shot in the Arm podcast. We'll release this through our usual channels. Uh, just a thanks to Eric Aspera, our director and uh, producer. And uh, a word, of course, to our listeners and viewers. Uh, you can find us at 
uh, Twitter and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast. Uh, find us on YouTube. Please give us five stars and give us a comment. And, you know, that's the way that we get the news out. So, Krista, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ben.